In the book of Romans, uh, when you go through chapter 8, you, know, you do a lot with sin and salvation. Chapters 19 and 11 was a lot about um, the role of Israel, the place of Israel as a people, not as a nation. Uh, and the Gentiles, we talked about that. And, and those first 11 chapters are heavy on doctrine. When you come to the 12th chapter, you begin really to understand the practical aspects of it. In uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, important verses in uh, Paul's uh, doctrine and his teaching. And uh, chapter 12 begins, therefore. I've said many times uh, to you, therefores are important in language, especially in biblical language. It refers back to something and normally is either going to bring a principle or a teaching or a concept to light. You need to know how far back the therefore goes. I would simply suggest probably in this instance, in light of everything in the first 11 chapters, talking about what it means to be saved, to be justified uh, by our faith, talking about the depth of sin, talking about God's election in our lives, choosing us for salvation. With all those things in mind, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, the concept of urging is exhorting, encouraging. And he calls them brothers, and brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a gender issue, it's just a general term. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So he says, I'm urging you. He's being pastoral now, based on doctrine, I urge you. A lot of times when I preach, uh, especially like last Sunday and this Sunday. I do this more and more now. Uh, most of my messages now are moving towards where I explain the passage, and then in the second point, I apply the passage. I do that a lot because of the, of the culture and generation we're living in, that it's simpler uh, for a lot of people who are not uh, church, not church, who did not grow up in church, uh, and who are new to Christianity, uh, to explain it and then apply it. And it used to be I would kind of apply it as I went, you know, and, and, but more and more I go away from that. And so what you have is, is Paul doing that. He's had, he's had exhortation, he's had exegesis, he's had doctrine, and now he's applying it in their life. So I urge you, he says, and I do it according to the mercies of God. Now, it's not mercy of God, which would indicate salvation, but the mercies of God that have been expressed throughout the previous chapters of Romans. In light of all the things that I have said that exemplify the unbelievable mercies of God, his compassion, his, his understanding, his forgiveness, he said, offer or present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice. And so we come now into the realm of what we would really look at almost as religious connotation. A living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service or reasonable service of worship, is, for the most part, language that is couched in what we would call the religious. In New Testament times, we might call it a faith. So he's saying, take your bodies and present it as a living sacrifice. Now, sacrifices were known in all religions of that day and age. We, in the New Testament age, don't make sacrifices, not literal sacrifices. But in Judaism, in paganism, where they came from, there was always offered up some type of sacrifice, flesh sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice we know is Jesus Christ. Because of that, there is never again a need to offer any other sacrifice. So when I hear people tell me 
that, you know, something's happening and the Jews are getting ready for their sacrifice. I'm like, not needed. Jesus took care of it. In fact, anything in addition to that is, dare I say it, heresy. His scripture has made it clear he is the final sacrifice. So we're not talking about sacrificing something to be from living the dead. He says you're a living, ongoing sacrifice. The sacrifice is that which is ongoing. Jesus would say, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, you must live as a sacrifice. You must give yourself over completely. To deny your cross is to take up the cross into death. In other words, you die to yourself and so that you may live to follow me. Paul is in essence saying the same thing. We must, as followers of Christ, have given ourselves sacrificially to Christ. We sacrifice our own desires. We sacrifice our own wants. And we live our life that way. And we're a living sacrifice, not only in that sense, but also because it says we are a holy sacrifice. Now, holy does not mean morally good or acceptable, but the idea of holiness is the idea of separation. The holiness comes from the Old Testament idea of being cut. Now, not being cut, but being cut apart. And so holiness is the concept of separation. It's not so much that you're separated from something, but separated to something. God is holy in that he is separated unto himself. There is none like him. He is one of a kind. So, you know, going back to when I used to pastor a lot of cattlemen and ranchers, I guess I still do a few. I don't know how many ranchers I have now, but I used to have a lot, especially down in Laredo. They would not be uncommon for them to go in and to take their cattle or even their horses and to cut them out. They wanted particular animals to cut out, not so much to separate from the herd, but to separate them for a particular cause. Oftentimes to take them to market to slaughter them, but that, that kind of takes the illustration too far. So the idea of the separation of God into himself, we, you know, we are told, in fact, I'm, you know, in, in, in Leviticus and 1 Peter, be holy, God says, for I am holy. There is, the holiness is to be separated and unto God. It requires some degree of separation from the world, but we're not totally separate from the world. We live in the world. I am surrounded every day by the world. But my separation is not that I remove myself from the world in some sort of aesthetic life, but that I commit myself so to God that I live for him and I pull myself away from the sin and I pull myself away from the rebellion of the world. So to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, is to understand that I'm going to cut myself towards God. I'm going to present myself then as an offering to God. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were to be holy without blemish. When Jesus drove out the money changers from the temple, there were a variety of things involved in that. But part of it was, is they were ripping off the people with sacrifices that were both corrupt and unholy. The sacrifice was to be without blemish, it would say. To be perfect, complete. And so you offer this, and as such, it is acceptable to God. And then this is what he says, and this is an important phrase. It is your spiritual service of worship. In some concepts, it says it is your reasonable service of worship. So I'm going to go to the word worship first. 
The word for worship is the word from which we get our term liturgy. Some versions just have worship, some have service. The New American Standard, which I read from, does it best when it says it is a service of worship. It comes from a word that spoke of anything that was done in the Old Testament times or the Hebrew times with a religious connotation towards God. So you have the idea of sacrificing that is a religious connotation. And you have the concept of liturgy, worship, which is a, a, a religious connotation. In other words, in the realm of dealing with God, in our service to God, worship is a type of service. When we worship God, what are we doing? We're giving ourselves to God in service. We're committing ourselves. Worship is a commitment. It is to recognize that you are serving one that is greater than you. You are serving the holiness of God. Now the word spiritual in some of your versions is reasonable. And it is the word from which we get the term logic. Logikos. And it has to do with that which makes sense. There is a logical aspect to worship. Now, far too many people think that worship, Christianity, faith is of a purely spiritual nature. In other words, that faith is without logic. Faith is without reason. Nothing could be further from the truth. Faith is reasonable. It is logical. Everybody puts their faith in something. I was dealing with an atheist not too long ago, and uh, I forget when it was. I forget where we were. But the comment I made is, even atheists have faith. At some point, you step off a pure knowledge into faith. But my faith is based on something that is reasonable. I am by nature a skeptical person. My faith in God is because it is the most logical and reasonable explanation for the world in which I live. When I look at the world and how the world came into existence, I go back to what is the very first cause of everything. And the most logical explanation is because of, based on all of my experience, everything that exists and began to exist came from someplace or someone made it, designed it somehow, some way, at a beginning. I don't know of anything that doesn't begin somehow. And in every beginning, there was a mover and a shaker behind that beginning. It is logical for me to assume that there is a God who did that. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more involvement. But I'm just saying, there is a reasonableness. So when I come to worship, worshiping or giving myself to God is the most logical and reasonable thing to do in light of the fact that God has saved me from my sins. So when I realize that I've been justified by the grace of God through my faith and that God has saved me from my sins, the most logical thing for me to do is what? To worship and serve God. So people that do not worship and serve God, but call themselves Christians, it is an illogical, unreasonable assumption. Now, I'm not simply talking about how often do they attend church. There's some of that. But I'm talking about whether or not a person in their life 
has demonstrated a dedication to and commitment of their life to honoring and glorifying the holiness of God. Most often we do that collectively. It's an expectation. But are we doing that, period? If not, it is illogical to think that you are a follower of Jesus. Again, I'm not talking about what their church attendance is. I'm talking about whether or not they truly worship and serve God. Therefore, Paul says, in light of that I have been justified and that I was a sinner saved by grace, I ought then to present my body as a living, holy sacrifice. It is the most logical act of worship that I can do. But he goes on. Not only that, he says, but he has a command. The command is this, do not be conformed to this world. Now, the word for world, and I've shared this with you many times, and many more times. World can be earth. It can be the world in sense of humanity or the world in opposition to God. And a lot of times it's the world in opposition to God as it is here. You came from a background. Most of these were Gentile believers. You came from a background of paganism and opposition to God. Even the Jews who were believers, had been from a background of rejecting God, rejecting Christ. Don't then be conformed or don't be molded into the pattern of this world. Don't conform yourself to this world. I, I remember, this is in the radio awesome. This is when all the goth things came about. And I was walking down the mall, and there were these group of people, group of teenagers, dressed all in black and had goth makeup. They looked... They, they looked vampire-esque. And, I, and I, remember, I remember thinking, did they like wake up that morning, get some, at breakfast, and there was Count Chocula and said, I want to dress like that, you know. But what I noticed about them is they never traveled by themselves. They always were together. They were rebelling in conformity to one another. <laughs> Paul says, in the mark of a Christian, and we're going to talk about unity in just a moment, is there is a lack of conforming to the world, even if it means you're by yourself. Do not be conformed to this world, to the pattern of this world, to the shape of this world. But he said, be transformed. Now, the word transformed means to be changed. We get our term metamorphosis from that. And so uh, the idea of metamorphosis is a changing. Be changed. Notice what he says. By the renewing of your mind. Remember earlier we talked about being logical. Now mind. What Paul is trying to get across, not that there is a lack of spirituality, but that's just not what he's focusing on now. He's focusing on the intellectual, reasonable driving of your faith. Transformation comes by an act of the will, of a decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. Now, I understand, you know, God calls us, and I got the doc, deep doctrine. But I'm saying we, we understand then that if I'm going in one direction and repentance is a turning to go the other direction, it is not simply a spiritual thing, but it is a decision of the mind to change the direction where I was going to follow God. We talk all the time, you've got to give your heart to Jesus. Understanding that in the biblical idea, heart was the place of the will. To us, the heart's the emotion. 
But to them, the emotion was, was the stomach. Actually, it was the bowels. It was kind of grotesque, to be honest with you. It is a commitment of reasonableness. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he says this. So that you may prove or test the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, testing doesn't mean you're putting God to the test, but that you will be able in your life to have demonstrated out that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. When you go through life, you will be able in the course of your life to exemplify and demonstrate and illustrate that what God is doing is good, it's pleasing, and it is perfect or to completion. I was dealing with someone recently who was struggling with something and trying to understand it all. And my comment simply was this. Don't try to figure out God's plan for your life right now while you're going through the struggle. You know, you're struggling, you're in pain. I'm trying to figure out what God's plan for this. Don't try to figure out the plan now. Trust God to get you through the pain and the suffering and the difficulty now. And when you come out of it, figure out why it happened. I tell those people all the time, if, you, if you're in the midst of struggle and turmoil and are trying to figure out why it's happening and how God will use you, you're not going to be very successful. My experience. But if you will, in the midst of difficulty, trust God completely with your life to get you through it. Once you're through it, you can then go back and do all those other things. That is sound pastoral advice that you ought to listen to. I don't give very good advice very often. No amen's good. But what I'm telling you, this is the way it is. What you need to do is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Trusting God. When it is through, you will have demonstrated that God's will is perfect. It is trustworthy. It is pleasing. And then you can figure out how to make that work in your life to whatever degree God wants. But the first thing you do is you need to have the renewing of your mind. People come all the time. I want to know what God's will is. Start by the renewing of your mind. By getting your life as a spiritual service of worship. Now, Paul then goes and talks about the essence of unity. He talks about grace. Through the grace given to me, the grace is that favor of God. I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think is to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So, in other words... All of you who are followers of Christ have a measure of faith. The idea of measure is not a particular amount, like I have a quarter of a cup, you have a third of a cup. But it is the fact of a measuring, it it is the fact that you have faith. The endurance, the time of faith, the measuring of it out. And so because of that, it's all about grace. Here notice we have grace and faith mentioned. Don't think too highly of yourselves. <laughs> now, evidently, this was a problem at Rome, as it was at Corinth, and he speaks in the talk about it. For notice what he says in verse 4, we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. You know, all of the aspects of our body have the same function. This is what I noticed. My fingernails don't seem to me to be very important. But over the years, especially when I was playing football, my fingernails got ripped off all the time. 
because I held too much, what they told me was probably true. I'd always have those things torn somewhere. That hurts a lot. It's painful. It caused me to exclaim, oh my, many times. <laughs> Lots of things are important in your body that don't seem all that important until you lose it. If you don't believe me, ask Barry. <laughs> You don't know about that, ask Barry. <laughs> Barry's missing a couple of digits, thanks to Joe. And we never stop living that moment all the time. For just as we have many members, he said in verse 4, they all have the same function, but this. So we who are many in one body in Christ and individual members are one another. In other words, we all have different functions, but we're all important. And if part of us are hurting, we're all hurting. If part of it's missing, it affects the whole body. So then he goes on and lists some gifts. So I'm going to talk about these gifts briefly, and then I'm going to talk the remainder of our time about spiritual gifts, because there's no place, I think, but there are a few places in terms of Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, where we are more messed up and more wrong than in spiritual gifts. One of the hugest pet peeves of mine is the inability for people to simply understand the nature of spiritual gifts, especially among the pastors and, and professors and teachers. We have gifts, and there, there, are three, there are several places gifts are mentioned, but three fundamental ones, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. We have different gifts, and the word for gift and the word for grace is the same word, charisma. Gift is something that is by grace. So verse 6 says, we have different gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. The word gift and the word grace is the same word. Each of us to exercise according if prophecy according to the portion of his faith. Prophecy, there's so many different explanations of prophecy. The best explanation of prophecy is the ability to proclaim what God has revealed. The Old Testaments, Old Testaments, the Old Testament, they would say, Thus saith the Lord, there was no Bible. So Elijah, Moses, Samuel proclaimed the word of God. In the New Testament, we have the mind of God revealed. It is called Scripture. And I know there's a lot of disagreement on this, but the simplicity of life today in a pragmatic sense, prophecy would be the gift to proclaim the word of God, what we might call preaching. If it serve, and then do it according to your faith. In other words, someone who is preaching or proclaiming or prophesying, it is in measure to the faith that they have. You want your preachers to have lots of faith. There are plenty of denominations and plenty of churches where people are preaching and they're not sure about whether or not Jesus really died on the cross and they're not sure about whether or not the Bible is the word of God. You don't want them preaching for you because they're going to stink at it. If it's serving or ministry, which we get the word deacon from, and then in serving, if it's teaching and teaching, so you do it to the full measure of your ability. If you are an exhorter or an encourager, then do it in that. If you give, then liberality. The word liberality, this is not a political liberal. This means to be open-handed. If you're going to give, give generously. Please do that. If you're a leader, then be diligent or be mindful of those you lead. If you have mercy, do it cheerfully. <laughs> no such thing. How do you show mercy not cheerfully? You can't really show mercy begrudgingly. No. Those are the gifts 
It's about seven or so gifts, uh, eight gifts that are listed right there. I think maybe a couple more than that. So let me talk about spiritual gifts. So I'll make some observations and comments. The other place where spiritual gifts are found in predominance is in, in 1 Corinthians. Ephesians mentions it in chapter 4, talking about the unity of the church, talks about certain people, you know, prophets, um, evangelists, um, missionaries, I think, and pastor, teacher. And, and so there's some confusion and all that. In, the, in Corinth, where most of it comes from, Paul is de- dealing with the church a lot different than this. This is a church he's never been to. He's talking to Gentiles and Jewish believers who need to have unity. Okay, it doesn't matter what you give to, have unity. In Corinth, the church is splintering, fragmenting all over the place. There's a group of people who consider themselves superior Christians, primarily because they have the ability to speak in tongues. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, he is dealing with the issue of speaking in tongues, which he gets to in the 14th chapter. So in the 12th chapter, he says, all of us, in some way, are gifted. And by the way, in in Corinthians, in Romans, in, in Ephesians, he mentions the fact that gifts are by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So there's the Trinitarian aspect. But we understand that gifts come primarily, the administration of gifts come from the Holy Spirit. And so in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about some of the gifts. And they're all part of the body. And they're all useful. And they're all needed. And they're all important. Even the lesser gifts are important. Because without them, you'd be missing. Then in chapter three, chapter 13, he talks about three gifts. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of which is love. By the way, faith, hope, and love are all gifts. The greatest of which is love. And in the 14th chapter, he deals with the problem which is speaking in tongues. Which is splitting the church apart. And he gives the corrective to that, which is if you're going to speak in tongues publicly, you need an interpreter. Now, this is what we know, and we got it here. And there's a place where Paul, even to Timothy, tells Timothy, you received a gift of prophetic utterance by the laying on of hands. So there's a place where Paul even says, Timothy, your gifts you have, we gave them to you through the power of the Holy Spirit and all that. So here's the thing that we know about gifts. They come from the Holy Spirit of God. They are acts of grace. Got it. We also find out that in the three, two major places, and also in the minor in Ephesians, but in Romans and Corinth, it is not an exhaustive list, but just simply a comprehensive. In other words, here are some examples of gifts. I don't think for a moment Paul listed all of them. Paul didn't mention faith and didn't mention love. In Corinth, or Corinthians, he doesn't mention mercy. Are you telling me that the church at Rome didn't have people with the gift of love and faith? Of course not. Or that in, over at Corinth, no one had mercy? Of course not. Or at Ephesus, they didn't have any of those? Of course not. And so he is just giving you examples. He doesn't give you all of them. And then the thing that's most important is that the purpose of the gifts are for the building up of the body of believers to be united in going and serving the Lord. Period. Now, so here's what we do today in gifts. And I was looking up gifts, uh, uh, some gift comparisons on the internet. And it's amazing what they do. So we end up saying, if you take all of the gifts that are mentioned, depending on how you count them, you get somewhere between 20 and 22 gifts that are mentioned. Nowhere is mentioned music. Nowhere is mentioned music. Oh, by the way, in Corinthians, it talks about music and worship in the sectional gifts. But it's not this is a gift. You don't have anything to do, you know, in certain breaking out with children or youth or whatever. You have any of that. And so there are some people, a lot of people who will say, in the Bible, there are 22 gifts. That's all there are. 
which is odd since evidently the church at Corinth didn't have those, some of those gifts and the church at Rome didn't have some of those gifts. And if, it's, if by chance, Paul didn't mention all the gifts at Rome, because some say, well, even though we didn't mention them all, they had them all. How do you know they had them all? You're just assuming. You know what happens when you assume? You're just assuming. And so they'll say there are 22 gifts, unless, of course, you're Baptist. And we don't believe in speaking in tongues, so we have to eliminate speaking in tongues as a gift today and eliminate the interpreting in tongues, and we might as well go ahead and eliminate the gift of miracles. So we eliminate those. They're gone. So we have fewer gifts. And that's all there are. And then, in order to discover your spiritual gifts, which are given to you by who? You know what we do? We create tests that a bunch of people, some who believe in speaking in tongues and some who don't, create so that you can take a test. We'll tell you what those gifts are. And by the way, in case you didn't know, those gifts are divided into three categories. And some people will tell you, you can't have more than one gift from each category. I don't know how they know that. It's not it there. Some people will tell you, you can't have more than three gifts, period. That's all you get. You're lucky if you get one. You get no more than three. And here's what I say. Why do we do that? There is not one Biblical, not one, not one, one biblical reason to do that is the height of arrogance. To think that I can determine what the Holy Spirit has given. Do you know there's no gift of music? I'll bring that up to guys. There's no gift of music. Music's not really a gift, it's a talent. Really. So you want to tell me. I don't want to mention Brian and Mike. I really don't. You want to tell me the ladies that sing in our church that it's just an ability? Can I ask you this? Who gave them the ability? Listen, I, I, I'm married to a gal who sings pretty well. Thank you for thinking. I'll tell her you said that. That'll give me brownie points. I'll tell her all you said. Listen, I, I, I've listened to these guys. Sing. Mike's a phenomenal singer. Brian is not too bad. God gives them that, right? Have you ever heard the phrase, well, that's just a God-given talent? Okay. Well, did they earn it? Why did God give it? Why did God give them the ability to sing and not me? It's called grace. Why did God give me the ability to preach and not them? Grace. Brian, grace. Right there. Why do I have the ability to preach so much shorter than Brian, Troy? Troy. Troy again, Joe, Barry, Troy. Why do I have to believe it? It's grace. Now, here's the thing. Don't you think, seriously, leading in worship and music, while not as important as preaching, is still just requires just as much of a spiritual gift. Seriously, don't you think so? And what about all that stuff? You, you think all that computer stuff? That's... You gotta know, you, God's got, God did not wire me to do computers, my friend. I don't touch that stuff back there. You know what? Teaching, do you know some people, we've got much people teaching with children. None of you are teaching children. By the way, I'm a, some of you teach adults. Teach adults, right? You're, I heard you're a pretty good teacher. You think you'd be very good with kids? No. You know why? God didn't gift you to teach kids, did he? 
why do we do this? Why do we limit the church, limit God and what he can do? It just, so I, I hear all the time, well, we're going to take a spiritual gift. So let me tell you, how do I find my spiritual gifts? It's not complicated. If you will just start doing what it says in Romans 12.1, which is live your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you will start doing that. I'm going to tell you two things that will help you understand the giftedness of the Holy Spirit. One, it's something, your gifts are things, understanding that they're useful to the church. So if it's not useful to the church, it doesn't count. You're good at it and you like it. There are a lot of people who like to sing. They just ain't good at it. <laughs> so you know, we let Evelyn comes and sings because she's good at it. It's a gift. A lot of people think they're good. And Brian and Mike make sure they understand that God loves them and we love them. But you need to like it. So you know what I'm good at? I'm good at detail work. I hate it. I, had a, I served on church at Park Hills where I had to do a lot of detail stuff. And I was really good at it, but I hate it. It's not a gift. It's just something I can do. At the end of the day... I've, over the years, I've discovered this is probably two spiritual gifts I have. I have love as a gift, but we all have that. But probably the only two things I'm really good at in the church, and some would say I'm not even good at that, but I'm, I'm, there's only things that I can do, is communicate Scripture and lead. That's about it. Now, we have a staff full of people who have a lot more gifts than I have. None of them do those as well as me, by the way, but they have a lot of other gifts, if you will, or as briefly. You'll never live that down, Troy. We call him the 55-minute Troy and bring that message. You got two sermons for the price of one. Some of you gave like, like it too. Here's the thing. All of our giftedness is important. Every person. The people who are working in preschool and children right now, in those lives, kids, are far more important than I am. Far more important than I am. By far. Find a place to serve. Let God sort it out. But do me a favor. Don't take a test. Because you may miss out on a gift that you have. It may take, I'll tell you this about all those gifts, tests. I can make every one of them spin the way I want it. I can answer them in such a way. I could end up with the gift of mercy when it's all over. And everybody knows I don't have that gift. <laughs> but here's the other thing that lifts out of that. There are times that just because I don't have these gifts doesn't mean I can't do these things. There are times that I have to have mercy. And there are times that I have to be hospitable. This is the crazy one. You know what? You know the gift of hospitality in the New Te- Old Testament and New Testament times? They didn't have hotels. The gift of hospitality was the ability to host people and welcome them into your home and make them a part of your life. We don't do that anymore. So you know now what the gift of hospitality is? It is the gift to organize a fellowship, to make tea and coffee and organize a fellowship. That, listen, we appreciate all you that do that. I don't think that's what hospitality means. We just take the gifts and we create these systems and the systems stink because we're not letting the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do. All of you are gifted. Go figure it out. We'll help you. And it may be something that I never thought of. 
But all of you serve. Okay, now I really lectured and preached on that one because it's just a source of constant irritation to me. So be transformed. Give yourself over as a living sacrifice and know that God will gift you to serve the church. Period. All right, got questions? I'll answer them if I can. No questions? Yes, ma'am. You said you didn't think um, you had mercy as a gift, but don't you believe there's a lot of people that are very empathetic and good listeners, so that's part of your gift? Is- well, I would simply say this. The gift of mercy is, 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 is I wouldn't understand it. There are times that I show mercy. Don't get me wrong. But I think all of us show all of these traits at some point. To, to mercy, there are people that what they're really good at is just going alongside people who are struggling with life and who are dealing with problems and listening to those problems and helping them through those problems and helping them work through that in such a way as there's compassion and empathy shown. I don't have that. Now, I can do it from time to time. That's not my strength. I would tell you Joe is great at that. But you don't want to come to me too often for that. Uh, I'll help you a little bit, then I'll move you on. To, I'll give you to Joe, who's a lot better than me. I mean, I don't, I don't even try, I don't really try to define these gifts. I just say, what is it that I'm really good at? And that's my, I don't, I don't try to define and categorize them. Now, whenever I go deal with the church, they always want to ask me my gifts, so I do that. But I don't, I don't necessarily try to define what my gift is in, in, in the strictest of terms that you see here, because I don't think that's what Paul is doing. So, yeah, there are times I'm pretty merciful. Now, there are times I'm pretty compassionate. And uh, I can go to a hospital, and if you're struggling, I, I am more than adequate and qualified to help you through that process. That doesn't necessarily mean that's my real strength. When I get towards the end of my, my ministry, I'm not going to go be a chaplain somewhere. That's, I just couldn't do that all the time. Uh, sure, but I, every situation depends on what scripture I'm going to go to. Depends on your situation. I believe in every situation is unique and depending on the situation is what I go to. So, yeah, just depends on where you're at. Yesterday I was with somebody and I, I use certain passages to help them. Tomorrow if I'm with somebody, I may use something completely different. Depending. It's good questions, though. What else? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, how do you know you're talking tongues? And I, I would say this. There is some confusion. The word tongue comes from the word glossolalia, which means the, the tongue. So in Acts, when it talks about tongues, that they're speaking tongues, it means dialect. Dialectos is used also. It's the dialect of their languages. In Corinthians, tongue, by the con- you have to look at the context. It's the ecstatic utterance. Some people call it the heavenly language. Some people call it the prayer language. But it would be an ecstatic utterance. By the way, every major religion in the world have people who speak in tongues. Just so you know that. They all have them. Buddhism, Hinduism, Muslim, Judaism, all have it. So we normally understand tongues, and uh, if you were to go down the road to our, our brothers and sisters, or up the road, wherever it is, over the road, at the Assembly of God, and they would speak in tongues there, it would be... It would be the Holy Spirit overcoming them and speaking in an unknown, unrecognizable dialect. 
If they do it publicly, they're supposed to be biblically someone to interpret it. Or you shouldn't do it. Now, one of the real things that we do as Baptists is we tend, because of the controversy and complications formed by that, we tend to not want to emphasize that. Now, if someone told me, hey, I speak in tongues at my house, I wouldn't argue with them. They said, I'm going to speak in tongues one day here. I would say, no, because it's not part of our Christian worship experience. And it would cause a lot of disunity. We wouldn't do it, which is what happened in court. So I, I don't know. I've never done it. Uh, Brian, tell us what the, I'm kidding. Uh, I've never done it, so I, I couldn't tell you. I'm not a big believer in it happening as often as people claim that it happens because there's not an interpreter most of the time to translate it, which would make me think they're not following Scripture publicly. If it's private, it's different. Uh, I have been overcome privately with the emotion that I didn't know what to say, and I just, in silence, gave myself over to God, but that's different. So I really, I wouldn't know much to tell you. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's hard one since I don't experience that or hang out with people that do. I can tell you I know some people who they talk about they've experienced they have gone to a service and they did that and it freaked them out. If it's not if it's not part of your tradition, it's probably not something you're comfortable with. I would say I'll leave it at that. If if it's part of your Christian experience. In the churches you've grown up with, you're probably more comfortable with it. I would not be comfortable because it's not part of my tradition. Anything else? See you Sunday.